Good morning, Sun Valley. Now, many of you are surprised to see me here this week because last week I told you I wouldn't be here, but uh, my dad's memorial service was delayed and it'll be on the 15th, so I'm going to be going back to be with my mom and our family on the uh, 13th through the 18th, I think, so if it doesn't change again, but uh, you never know. But anyways, I'm here and I'm excited to be here with you, so I'm glad that uh, we can worship together and dive into the scriptures together again. And so I want to do that for you now. If you have a Bible, I hope to turn to Mark chapter 1. I think that uh, you'll discover that what the Holy Spirit has for us today is for all of us, for you, for me, for our neighbors. You know, there are many different ways that we have tried and failed to address the chaos in our own lives, right? <clears throat> We've tried exercise, the chaos continues. Diet, the chaos further continues. Uh, makeovers, vacations, divorce and remarriage. We buy things like new homes, new cars, new clothes, etc. We elect new politician and the chaos remains, continues. And yet we still think that these things, these worldly approaches, attempts at peace and order, contentment, will somehow work next time, right? It seems that all of these attempts of ours at peace and contentment are short-lived. We, we think of changing our workout routines will we'll work, we, different diet will work, maybe hiring a new politician will work. But I've discovered when I come back from vacation, my chaos remains. It's still there. So what am I supposed to do? I can't seem to stay on a diet. Politicians continue to make bad decisions. Chaos continues. What's the solution? This has been the challenge of human history, hasn't it? And I know it's the challenge of your life because you're like me. <laughs> we continue these things. And as I've said before, the human race has a long history of chaos starting in the Garden of Eden. I want to suggest maybe it starts a little earlier than the Garden of Eden. Uh, I want to read for you Genesis 1 and demonstrate at least it starts earlier than the Garden of Eden. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, when you come across words like formless, void, and darkness, that's a biblical way of saying chaos, right? This is what was happening. There was a chaotic situation. There was formlessness, voidness, darkness, and the Holy Spirit was hovering over that. Now, today, I want to give you a backstage pass of sorts so that you can look around behind the scenes of the revealed Word of God. Uh, not that we have some mysterious inside addition uh, here, but I just wanna, I want to help you see a little bit behind the stories and see the purpose and the connecting dots that are there. We have this biblical record in front of us, right? Uh, we know the stories, we're familiar with them. Many of us know all about the creation story, including Adam and Eve in the garden, and the story of Noah and the flood, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the story of the Jews in Egyptian captivity and the great escape in the Exodus, um, and then the 40 years in the wilderness, of course. We're, we're familiar with all these things. And then maybe if you're a Bible scholar, you know about Joshua and the conquest of Canaan and all those different judges that were there, and then the kind of the move towards national identity when Israel took on kings and Saul and David and so forth. A lot of us are familiar with that stuff. And then after, of course, this chaos, failure, warnings, 
the Messiah arrives here in the Gospels. And as familiar as we are with all these stories, I, I wonder if some of us might struggle connecting the dots of the stories, understanding why the stories are in the sequence they are given, why all the stories. Um, we might not fully understand all the significance of these things and how they come together to communicate God's will and purposes. So how do they build on one another? How do these, why all the stories? Are they just stories with good morals so we'll be better people? Or is there really truly a purpose of God behind all of this stuff? I want to encourage you to understand that God has an intent here, a clear one. Um, and I have hopefully today a little bit of insight for you that might help you see some of the connecting dots. So let's begin with the first point in our outline, God, chaos, and world history. I think I've mentioned enough times in the past month that chaos has a long history on this planet. Um, but today I want to connect these chaos dots for you and, see, and let you see that there's actually purpose and meaning behind the record of all this chaos that we read about in Scripture. I want to show you an interesting and instructive pattern of chaos in Scripture and show you how the baptism and temptation of Jesus in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13, uh, is an important part of God's solution to this chaotic human history. All right? My goal this morning is, is not really to tickle your curiosity with some interesting biblical patterns, but to show you that our God has great interest in your victory over sin and control where there might be chaos, order, peace, contentment, where they may not presently exist. And more than just an interest. God has more than just an interest in these things. Uh, God is committed to the solution for human chaos. He, he, he knows the result of sin in every occasion and he is committed to presenting a solution to all that resultant chaos in your life and in the human race. So if you're struggling with sin or trying to navigate some personal chaos in your life that may be suffocating you or maybe those around you, I want you to pay attention today, particularly. Even if, even if you are just cruising in the spiritual life and don't seem to have a care, Believe me, there's people around you that do have problems and need to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say to us today. But I suspect that there's more of you who aren't cruising and couldn't use what the Holy Spirit has for us today. All right? So I want to show you how Jesus not only is God's solution to this worldwide uh, chaos pandemic, but how also Jesus' um, process through his temptation in the wilderness that we're going to look at today is really a pretty good pattern for us as we deal with our own chaos in our lives day to day. All right? So as we look at, at this first point, God, chaos, and world history, I want to show you from Scripture six steps that happen over and over and over again in biblical history that move from chaos to tragedy. Six steps, starting with chaos, ending with tragedy. And it's repeated 
all over scripture. You may not have seen this pattern, but you'll see it in a second. And I wanna show you how Jesus' baptism and temptation is the solution, okay? So first of all, the first, the first step in this pattern that we'll see repeated is found in Genesis 1, 1 and 2 that I read for you, but if it's not on the overhead, you can turn to it again. Genesis 1, 1 and 2, and we will see the very first pattern of chaos right in front of our eyes, <clears throat> six steps. The first is creation chaos, or the first, the first illustration of this pattern is called creation chaos, and it begins with this chaos. Look at verse one and two. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form, void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So whenever we read those words, like I said in the Bible, we're coming across God's description of chaos, formless, void, darkness, all right? The Hebrew word there is really interesting. It's tohu babohu. The word sounds interesting, doesn't it? Tohu babohu. Uh, so, parents, when you yell down to your basement and ask your teenage kids, what's going on down there? And you hear tohu babohu, you know it's chaos down there. Don't even go down there. Or when you're out in the garage, husbands, and your wife says, what's, what are you doing out there? You can just yell back tohu babohu, and she knows it's chaotic. It's not good. Stay away kind of thing. But the first step in this pattern is always chaos. It always includes water here over the face of the waters. The spirit was hovering. Chaos seen by water, formlessness, and void. Second step, we see this again repeated. God's breath over the water. It says, and the Spirit of God was hovering over well, that word spirit is ruach in Hebrew. And it represents three meanings. Spirit, like it's recorded here, wind, and breath. Ruach. Right? New Testament counterpart is pneuma. And it means the same three things. Spirit, wind, and breath. And so here we have chaos. God's breath over the water, God's spirit over the water, the Ruach of Elohim, it says here, the spirit of God. And that's the second step. Third step in this pattern is that God speaks. And what do we see here? Let there be light. Let there be, and let there be, and let there be. God speaks into the chaos. And what's the expectation? Here's the fourth step, order. When God speaks, we expect there to be order, right? And it, there is, and there was light. <laughs> and then there was animals, and then there were humans. Why? Because God spoke, that's why. God speaks, and out of the order, the chaos is, I mean, out of the chaos, order is the expectation. And so, fourthly, God brings this order. That's the fourth step. So the three steps before, chaos, God's spirit or breath over water, and then God speaks, and the fourth, the expectation of order. If you're filling in notes, all right? God places man and woman in the garden and invites them to participate in bringing order to the chaos, invites them to steward God's blessing, to manage, to guard, enjoy this creation that came out of chaos, 
And so the question could have been to Adam and Eve, are you going to join me in creating order? Here's how you can do that. Stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All right? Join me. Manage with me. Enjoy with me this creation. Stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God tests. There's the fifth thing, the test. Will there be a a partnering with God in producing order out of chaos? And we know how this, this first story ended, right? Tragedy. Starts with chaos. God speaks. Expect the expectation of order, and then the sixth step, tragedy, failure, expulsion from the garden, death, more chaos. Now, as you think through all your understanding and remembrances of biblical stories, you will see this pattern repeated over and over and over. And whenever you see something repeated over and over and over in Scripture, it's like God saying, pay attention. Pay attention. Let's learn something from this. And this is no different. Where else do we see a lot of water mixed with chaos? What's the next big story in Genesis? The flood, right? Noah and the flood. There's a lot of water and a lot of chaos, right? We've seen the flannel graphs. We've seen the Hollywood movies. We've heard the stories read to us. If there was a time of human chaos on this planet, it was before the flood, right? It was, I mean, Genesis 6 tells us that it was just totally out of control, the chaos resulting from sin at the time. And so chaos was in the world, and so God covered the planet with water. Then what happened? After Noah floated around for about a year with his family, The Ruach of God blew across the face of the water, and the water receded, right? Spirit over the water, water recedes, dried up. Thirdly, God speaks, Noah, come out of the ark and fill the earth, right? Follow me, join me, and what's the expectation? Order, step four. Order is the expectation, Noah is expected to partner with God to bring order out of the chaos that God dealt with with water. So he says, follow me, Noah. Be obedient. Fill and multiply the earth. Spread out. Then the order is tested, right? And we know how that test went, don't we? Immediately, Ham sinned. God cursed his son Canaan through Noah that was the test, and what the tragedy was the result, the sixth step, tragedy. So to, for those of you taking notes, chaos, the wind or spirit or ruach of Elohim over the waters. Thirdly, in Noah's case, God speaks, tells him to come out of the ark, fill the earth. Fourthly, God expects order and Noah to join him. Fifthly, that order is tested. And then sixthly, failure, tragedy. What's another, and I'm just giving you a little, a few, there's more, but I just want to give you a a taste of this pattern that's established in in biblical history so that when we get to the temptation of Christ, this will make sense to you, okay? The Exodus chaos is next. Exodus chaos. Was there chaos on the planet when the Jews were in Egyptian slavery? Yeah, (laughs) especially if you're a Jew. Right? A lot of chaos. 
Um, the people of Israel were in utter chaos, trying to escape slavery, total despair. And what do we see? Well, let, let's, let's, let's flesh this out a little bit more. They escape the country by night, pretty much, and they're heading out in the wilderness. Pharaoh wakes up from whatever he was on and realizes all of his slaves are gone, chases them into the wilderness. They find themselves between two mountains and a sea. Behind them is the world's most powerful army. You would describe this, if you were there, as chaos, all right? And so, like the pattern has been established already, with chaos is a lot of water, like the Red Sea in this case. And what happens at the Red Sea? What's the second point? God breathes, right? The Spirit of God, the, the Ruach of Elohim, blows, it says, an east wind and drives a path right through the middle of the Red Sea. God is bringing order out of chaos again. He speaks to Moses at the Red Sea. He speaks to Moses immediately after the Red Sea at Sinai, giving the Ten Commandments. What's the fourth point? The expectation of order. Moses, people of Israel, are you going to follow me? Are you going to partner with me in creating a new order out of the chaos? That order is tested again. And what happens? They leave Mount Sinai area, immediately fall. In fact, before Moses could even get off the mountain, they fell. They failed. Tragedy. One more time. Once the next time, chaos and water comes into focus in, in the scriptures. There's a lot, okay? I'm just giving, crossing the Jordan. The same six steps happens again. And again, and again. It's like the seven sin cycles of Judges. But this is a much broader picture. So what does any of this have to do with the baptism of Jesus and his temptation? <laughs> Let's go to that point. Point number two. If you're not there already, turn with me back to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 9 through 13. Listen to this. See if any of this rings a bell. All right? In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Let me tell you, just heads up, the Jordan is wet. Okay? Baptized in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn apart Clue two, and the Spirit of God hovering over the water. <laughs> this isn't circumstantial. <laughs> All right? And then look what happens. The Spirit's descending like a dove, hovering over the water, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And... To, to get the full picture, I've had Matthew 4 read to you to kind of help you see the expanded version so you can connect the dots more clearly of this pattern in biblical history. 
And believe me, we'll get there in a second, but there is practical today application in this pattern. Okay? Bear with me. Let's move on to point two. God and the baptism of Jesus. God and the baptism of Jesus. Here's, here comes Jesus all of a sudden. At the height of world chaos, was there chaos in the world in Jesus' day? Yeah, how about this? The Roman Empire was smashing everything in its path. <laughs> I mean, smashing people. And the Jews were a group that the Roman Empire was smashing. They would have described their circumstances as chaotic. And so the world here is in an evident another cycle of chaos. And we read from the Apostle Paul that Jesus showed up in the fullness of time. Galatians 4.4. What's that mean? At just the right time, at the perfect time, when chaos was at its peak time, Jesus showed up. God sent his son into the world to save sinners, to deal with the problem of sin and the chaos it causes. Last week, you remember, I talked to you about the purpose of Jesus' baptism. One, to fulfill all righteousness, and two, to authenticate Jesus and his ministry. We talked about that, verses 9 through 11, last week. So let me tag on to that and run into the, the temptation, okay? Fulfilling all righteousness. Most, some of you know that John the Baptist was an Essene. It's a religious sect in Jewish religion, an Essene, all right? Very strict in how they viewed uh, Jewish religion. And Jewish Essene baptism was a statement to the world that I am choosing to walk the path that God has established. That's what John was preaching and applying to his preaching. An Essene baptism, a, a turnabout, a, a repentance away from my own agenda, away from sin, and towards God. That's what was in view. And Jesus needed to be baptized for what he said was fulfilling all righteousness. Now, he was communicating that not only would his ministry fulfill all righteousness by exchanging his righteousness for our sins. That's a pretty good fulfilling of righteousness in my view. I receive his righteousness. He takes my sin. That's what's going on. That's one. Secondly, but that he himself, Jesus, would indeed love and serve God with all his heart. He would fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law himself, fulfilling all righteousness. So now let's look at the details of this baptism as it relates to the pattern of chaos to tragedy. All right? Let's look at the details in Mark 1 watery situation. Yep, there it is. Check that off. Number one, watery chaos. The, the water of the baptism of Jesus represented the sin of mankind. We talked about that last week a little bit, didn't we? How at that moment, the sins of mankind were, were symbolically, important word, underline that word, highlight that word, were symbolically transferred from Humanity to the Christ, to the anointed Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was a symbolic transfer of our sin pictured in the waters of baptism with the hands of God's man, John the Baptist, on his head. Just like the Old Testament sacrificial system. 
No surprises here, right? Well, this water of Jesus' baptism was associated with the sins of the people, hence chaos pictured in the waters of Jesus' baptism. So we, see, we read this in Isaiah 9-2, speaking of the Messiah. This is a messianic passage. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. What, they, what were they doing? Walking in darkness, walking in chaos. They've seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, more chaos, on them a light has shone. Then Jesus shows up and here he is. So the darkness of sin was all over the world like the darkness was over the chaos of the original creation. Just another pattern here that's being established. Chaos was at its peak. The world needed the ruach of God, the breath of God. The world needed the word of God. They needed God to speak into their situation. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John 1. Here's God's word in the water of baptism. Friends, the world needed a savior, and he showed up, according to Paul in Galatians 4.4, at the perfect time. At the perfect time. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So we have met the criteria of watery chaos, right? Let's move to God's breath. The dove shows up. The Spirit of God, the rogue of God, descends on the water again. All right? As I mentioned last week, when Jesus witnessed the Spirit hovering over the water in his baptism, it was the second time that he personally had seen that happen. The first was at creation in Genesis 1. Jesus was there also, right? Think about what we're seeing here in this record, Mark's record of Jesus' baptism. Mark and Matthew combined. We have chaos, we have God's breath, then God speaks here again. This, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. There's God speaking and what does God expect? Order, like he did in every other point four. In the creation account, in the Exodus account, in the Red Sea account, in the Jordan account, number four is the same. God expects order. What? What's that mean? He expects his son to follow through on the plan to fulfill all righteousness. Is Jesus going? To, we, of course, we know this because we know the story. God knows this because he's God. But if we were coming to this story for the first time, we'd be asking the question, is Jesus going to partner with God the Father? Is he going to bring order out of the chaos into which he's been sent? Will he be faithful? And we get the answer immediately. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Yes, is the answer. Jesus spends the rest of his life partnering with his father, bringing order, order out of the chaos. Thirdly, the first four points of the pattern we've covered in his baptism Let's move to his temptation, which is the focus of our sermon today. God and the temptation of Jesus. Now we're in new territory as a church here as we study the, the gospel of Mark. And what we see here is the fifth, the fifth step of this pattern, biblical pattern, testing. 
testing. This new creation will be tested, this new order, this new kingdom. Jesus is going to be tested. Look at verse 13. And, or 12, immediately he drove him into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being, the ESV says tempted, half the translations use the word tested, not tempted. He was in the wilderness, taken there by the Holy Spirit of God to be tested. Step five, all right? So he went into the wilderness, driven there, it says driven by the Holy Spirit for this test. Uh, was it a real test? Let me tell you something. <laughs> it's way more real than anything that we can experience. It was really real. It was severe, which is why Mark and the other people, uh, writer, New Testament writers who record this, say he was with wild animals. Why? Why that? Who cares? The wild animal. Because if wild animals are there, you're in a desolate, God-forbidden area. The reason wild animals are there is because humans aren't. It was a severe situation. He was completely isolated. He had no one to lean on, no one to encourage him. The very things that we need to survive our trials that we sang about earlier is people. Jesus was there alone, by himself, with wild animals. All that was available to him was his relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit and his own mind which had been well-trained. And I'm not talking the mind of God that came from glory. I'm talking about his human mind that he got from his mother Mary. That was well-trained in the scriptures, okay? His testing in the wilderness followed the very same pattern of testing that the Israelites experienced in their 40 years. This was 40 days, 40 years back in the book of Exodus and following. We don't have time to unpack the parallels between the 40 days and 40 years, but it's there and it's impressive. If you want to do a little study, you can do that yourself. But in their testing, to get to step six, in their testing in the wilderness, how did that go? Can we say failure? Yes. Capital F, capital A, all the way to the end, failure. Tragedy, right? Complete and utter tragedy in their 40-year wilderness testing. And so now we get to Jesus in his testing, his sixth step. What do we expect? Well, we're humans, we expect the same ending to every story. It's like when you're watching a story on, on video and if you watch it the second time, it has the same ending, you know that, right? So I guess there's gonna be tragedy. I wonder what John the Baptist thought about this. He, he certainly knew this pattern. I, I can see John the Baptist saying to Jesus, don't do it, man. Do not go out there and get tested. We know how this ends. It's never ended well. Jesus, don't go. But Jesus was driven to the wilderness by God, the Spirit. Every time up to this point, the result of testing has always been tragedy on every occasion. For the first time in human history, the story doesn't end in tragedy. Think about the profundity of this. For the first time in human history, 
The story doesn't end with tragedy. What's Mark telling us? What do all the New Testament authors tell us about the matter? (laughs) Jesus came to deal with sin and chaos. Jesus is presenting himself. Mark is presenting him. John is presenting him. Luke is presenting him as the solution. This is God's solution to chaos. It doesn't end in tragedy. If the world, if you, to make this more personal, want to successfully navigate any sin-caused chaos in your life, it must be with Jesus. He's the only one to have proven to work this thing. I'm not saying that Jesus will help you lose weight, although I think he will. Actually, I think he does. If, and this is tricky territory, and I'm, this isn't the point. I, I don't, why did I say that? We can just move on. But... Uh, Let me just wrap it up with this. We don't sell Jesus with his temporal blessings, do we? No. Those of us who who know the scriptures, we don't sell Jesus to our friends and neighbors and get them to come to Christ because if they do, they'll have a better marriage. But if you do, you'll have a better marriage. (laughs) Right? We don't say, hey, come to Jesus. You'll, You'll really get a good job. No. He'll bring you satisfaction in your present job. See, we don't sell Jesus by his temporal blessings. We sell Jesus because he's the solution to our chaos. He's God's answer for our sin. And then you'll lose weight. (laughs) And then your marriage will improve. And then you'll be satisfied with your job. Does that make sense? Jesus is the only answer to sin. He's our only hope of forgiveness and victory over it. But but there's more here that I want you to see. And this is an addendum to the end of the sermon. I could have ended it with the last sentence, but listen to this addendum. Listen to how Jesus avoided tragedy. Listen to how Jesus resolved chaos in his situation there in the wilderness. And this is what you can take to the bank. I'm not a blueprint kind of guy for the Christian life. I don't think there's blueprints for the Christian life. But if there was one, this is closest it comes, right here. This is, as close as I would say, this is a blueprint for defeating sin in your life, for eliminating chaos in your life. So listen closely. How can we bring order out of our chaos? Real quickly, back to Matthew 4. You there? Matthew chapter 4. This is the expanded version of the same story in Mark chapter 1. How did Jesus do it? Matthew 4 lays it out line by line. And by the way, please don't interpret me saying that Jesus is a good example to follow. (laughs) He is that and so much more. But his example here on, on victory in sin is amazing and worth you hearing. Um, let's, let's go through his, his three-step process in his encounter with testing in the wilderness. First, we have to see, you can't miss it, that he knew the Word of God. Not because he's God, but because he was, de- he was dedicated to learning the Scriptures personally as a human 
He knew the word of God so well that he recognized it when it was taken out of context by Satan. As you read the challenges of the temptations from Satan here, each of them is taken out of context. And Jesus says, hold on, <laughs> it's actually written. Do you know the scripture well enough? Do you know the scripture well enough to see when it's taken out of context? To be able to say to me, Pastor John, you missed it there, buddy. Are you a Berean? Like they, with the Apostle Paul, searched the scriptures to see if he was talking a bunch of baloney? Jesus was there. He said, hold on, Satan, it's actually written. He knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. As a human, it is written. Let me ask you, what would happen to you if the Spirit of God drove you into the wilderness of testing this week. I had a, a, a gentleman come up to me after the service, the first service, and said, that's me. God has me in the wilderness of testing right now. How would you do? Let's say this week, the Spirit drove you to your extreme. How would you handle it? Would you, you know, spiral down into despair and chaos? like the rest of humanity has done in all of human history? Would you be ready? Many of us have been through times of testing because of our age. The older you are, the longer you walk with Christ, the more tested you are, just like Abraham. How did you do? How did you do? Think back. How did you do last month, last year, five years ago when you were tested? Did you know the scriptures well enough? to survive? Could you identify where things were wrong? How'd you do? What do you think would have happened if Jesus didn't know the Word of God all that well? What would, what would happen in that situation? The Holy Spirit would have stepped in and helped, you would say, right? It's a good answer, but it's wrong. <laughs> No, that's never Jesus' mode of operation. No. That wasn't, Jesus never had an attitude of let go and let God. Let's just see what happens here. No. Jesus was able to deal with his chaotic temptation because he knew the scriptures by heart. He knew, not just by heart, he knew the application of scripture to all circumstances because he had saturated his heart and mind with the scriptures. And it wasn't because he was God, it was because he was a dedicated human being to the scriptures. Wow, it is written. We read from the Apostle Paul that the scriptures are part of the Christian armor, right? Ephesians 6, yeah. Would you ever think of going into battle without your armor on? No. At least you shouldn't. So why would we? We know there's going to be testing, battles, trials, temptations. We just, we just read earlier. Why are you surprised if this happens? Don't you realize that this is part of the Christian life? We know it's coming, so why wouldn't we be prepared? Put on the armor of God and stand. Know the scriptures. So read your Bible. Study your Bible. Be saturated with the word. But you need more like Jesus than just to know the word. Secondly, you must trust the word. 
Jesus trusted the word that he knew so well. He trusted the God of the word that he knew so well. We must trust God's word to be true, to be sufficient for all of our circumstances. We do fine with following the word of God as long as it works out the way we want. I'll follow Jesus as long as he walks the path that I want to walk. I'll do what the Bible says as long as it's working and I'm happy. Well, as soon as it doesn't, then what? Do we run to the world's wisdom on the matter? So many do. Let me give you a couple examples. Disciplining your children. Do you realize that the Bible is so clear on this issue, it's not debatable? How to discipline your children is laid out in black and white for every Christian to use and practice with. And yet, can I tell you how many times I've heard parents say, that doesn't work for our kid. We have a special situation here. Our kid, that doesn't work. Really? So, so your wisdom or that wisdom from the blogger you read is better than God's? Oh, wait, hold on. What are you saying? Do you trust God's word or not in the matter? Example two, finances. Again, is the Bible unclear about our finances and how we're to steward them? No, <laughs> very clear. And yet, many people say, that doesn't work for me. Many, not just people, Christians. That doesn't work for me. I, I've got a way better source. Found it online the other day. It's really good. Got a lot of five-star ratings. Jesus' testing in the wilderness, friends, was severe. Severe. It would have been easy for him to use his own method and ignore God's way of dealing with the chaos that was obvious. Right? He knew how to make food appear out of nothing. He was hungry. God's method produced more chaos in the short view. Right? This isn't working, God. I'm still hungry and it's been two weeks. I actually like the idea of a cinnamon roll. There's a rock. Boom. Problem solved. I'm going to write a blog. Right? The first two steps of Jesus' dealing with chaos around him was to know the word and trust the word. Know the word and trust the word. Do you know God's word and do you trust it? Secondly, or thirdly rather, Walk the word. It isn't enough just to know the scriptures or to be in church weekly, to be a regular at your small group, or even to be serving sacrificially somewhere in the church. No, every Christian who desires victory over sin, temptation, and chaos must walk the word, must know the word, trust the word, and walk the word. Paul said in Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have received. There must be the walking. There must be the obedience. God has always preferred obedience over sacrifice, hasn't he? Our love for God is demonstrated by our obedience, not 
memorizing Bible verses. Our, our love for God is, is demonstrated in loving others, not knowing doctrine. Our love for God is known by meeting the needs of those in our church and in our community who have needs, not reading theology books. Friends, obedience is better than sacrifice. Children in the room. There's not as many in this second service. First service is full of them. Why is that? Anyways, children in the room. Of course, we're all children, right? We all have parents. Um, your love for God is demonstrated by your obedience to your parents, children. And, and by the way, training your children to obey is simply training them to obey God. That's, hopefully you've made that connection by now, parents. All right, so how do you bring order out of chaos? Jesus showed us this formula. And remember, I'm not a big formula guy, but it is written. It is written, and I trust what's written. In fact, not only is it written, do I trust what's written, I'm going to follow what's written. I'm going to do it. I'm going to obey. This morning we have the, the great privilege of being served the Lord's Supper. We do this twice a month here at Sun Valley Church. This is one of those times. We're going to serve you the Lord's Supper, but as we do, I want you to examine your heart. In light of what we've just heard from Mark chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 4, I want you to examine your heart and see if you are, first of all, if you've embraced God's solution to the sin and chaos in your life. Have you done that? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? These elements, the Lord's Supper, is for those who have. If you have not done that, please don't take the supper, even as much as peer pressure would have you do that. Stay in your seat and be safe. Coming up, coming up here and participating in the Lord's Supper, if you don't know Christ, if you've not embraced him, is a dangerous, <laughs> dangerous path. Don't do that. If you know Christ, you should be up here no matter what in your life. You're saying, well, I don't know the scripture well enough. I don't trust the scripture as I should. I certainly don't walk it the way I should. Then get up here. Right? You, more than any, need to be up here. Being ministered to by the Holy Spirit of God through the instrumentality of the elements, you receive grace upon grace in this setting. Like nowhere else in the Christian life, friend, you need to be here, especially if you're hurting especially if you need an encouragement. Don't miss it. I'm going to read the words of institution, and then I'm going to pray uh, for us. Elders, if you would join me at some point during the prayer, the elders will serve you, so you'll form two, two rows, walk right down the middle. The elders will serve you as God's people, you'll take the elements, walk back to your seat, and you're free to take those elements whenever you're ready. All right? But let me read these words, and then I'll pray over the elements, and then, elders, if you would please help me serve God's people. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, Jesus also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, come and be ministered to by the Holy Spirit of God. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that you have provided your word, your spirit, your son for our salvation, for our satisfaction and fulfillment. Thank that you provided here now this sacrament, this remembrance, this ordinance, where you come and personally minister to your sheep, to your people. You, you, you know the exact places in our hearts that are weak and weary. You know the places of our failure. You know everything from top to bottom, inside and out. And you know exactly, Holy Spirit, how to minister that healing balm here and now through the elements. God, do your work. Minister to us through your spirit, through the elements for your people. Amen.